We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, good morning, everybody. Great to see you this morning. We've got a good little crowd here. All right, welcome this morning. Uh, We are live streaming this morning. Welcome if you're online. Glad that you're able to join us. We're continuing our journey through reading the scriptures together, and we turn to Ezekiel again this morning. Now we're in chapter 24, Ezekiel 24. And after our scripture reading, we'll ask the men to come up to take the offering and our musical ministry for the offertory as well. But first, Ezekiel 24. Again, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, write down the name of the day. This very day, the king of Babylon started his siege against Jerusalem this very day. And utter a parable to the rebellious house, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Put on a pot, set it on, and also pour water into it. Gather pieces of meat in it, every good piece, the thigh and the shoulder, fill it with choice cuts, take the choice of the flock, also pile fuel bones under it, make it boil well, and let the cuts simmer in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose scum is in it, and whose scum is not gone from it. Bring it out piece by piece, on which no lot has fallen, for her blood is in her midst, She set it on top of a rock. She did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust, that it may raise up fury and take vengeance. I have set her blood on top of a rock, that it may not be covered. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city! I, too, will make the pyre great. The fire is what that is, like a funeral pyre, P-Y-R-E. Heap on the wood, kindle the fire, cook the meat well, mix in the spices, and let the cuts be burned up. Then set the pot empty on the coals, that it may become hot, and its bronze may burn, that its filthiness may be melted in it, that its scum may be consumed. She has grown weary with lies, and her great scum has not gone from her. Let her scum be in the fire, and your filthiness is lewdness, because I have cleansed you and you were not cleansed. You will not be cleansed of your filthiness anymore till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. I, the Lord, have spoken it. It shall come to pass, and I will do it. I will not hold back, nor will I spare, nor will I relent. According to your ways and according to your deeds, they will judge you, says the Lord God. Verse 15, Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence, make no mourning for the dead, 
Bind your turban on your head and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. So I spoke to the people in the morning. And at evening, my wife died. And the next morning I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things signify to us that you behave so? And I answered them. The word of the Lord came to me saying, speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will profane my sanctuary, your arrogant boast, the desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul, and your sons and daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips nor eat man's bread of sorrow. Your turbans shall be on your heads and your sandals on your feet. You shall neither mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away in your iniquities and mourn with one another. Thus Ezekiel is a sign to you. According to all that he has done, you shall do. And when this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord God. And you, son of man... Will it not be in the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy, and their glory, the desire of their eyes, and that on which they set their minds, their sons and their daughters? On that day, one who escapes will come to you and let you hear it with your ears. On that day, your mouth will be opened to him who has escaped. You shall speak and no longer be mute. Thus, you will be assigned to them, and they shall know that I am the Lord." That is one tough prophetic assignment, isn't it? Very difficult for Ezekiel, but he himself became assigned to the people of Israel. I can't give a full uh, introduction to our speaker this morning. Uh, we've uh, learned a little bit about him earlier today, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing more uh, another time. But uh, for now, we'll just um, invite Alex to come and bring the word. We're looking forward to it. Tell me, Alex, uh, what scripture, uh, what translation are you going to use? Okay, all right, New American Standard, if you have that. Look at that, brothers, very happy back there. Yeah, so uh, that's good. We look forward to that. So if you have that version at home, you want to listen, watch, uh, follow along with that, uh, you can use the New American Standard, uh, English Standard Version, similar, uh, and uh, the other translations we use as well. So, brother, we're looking forward to the word. Please come and uh, share with us. This is Alex Novak going to preach for us, so. It's a privilege to be here. Is this on? Okay. It's a privilege to be here. I would ask that you'd open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Um, I was listening to the announcements this morning, and uh, it sounds like, if I'm understanding correctly, you folks just got out of a, a, a focused week of prayer. Is that correct? And uh, I did not know that in advance, <laughs> but the Lord knew that. And I hope, it's my prayer, that uh, the message that we'll be seeing from God's word this morning will hopefully dovetail really well with that emphasis that you've just had. So the, the text we're going to be looking at today, I'll just say, qualify this up front, you're not going to find the word prayer in it. And yet I think that as we unpack what this Old Testament narrative uh, says to us today, we will find in it some principles that directly apply to the Christian life of prayer. Again, we'll be in 1 Samuel 16. Now, the context of 1 Samuel 16, I would hope, would be somewhat familiar to you. If you recall from chapter 15, at this point, King Saul is on the throne. 
and his army has been ordered by the Lord to completely annihilate, annihilate Amalek. Man, woman, child, beast alike, everything is devoted to destruction because of the harm Amalek inflicted on Israel during her exodus from Egypt. But if you know the story, you know that it does not have the sort of victorious ending that we would anticipate from the king of Israel. In fact, tragedy strikes. Tragedy in the form of disobedience. King Saul disobeys the Lord's command, and he spares the life of all the desirable livestock and of the king of Amalek, King Agag himself. So the Lord's prophet is informed of this disobedience and sent by the Lord to confront King Saul. But rather than accepting accountability for his disobedience, what does the king do? Yeah, he serves up an array of excuses. He shifts blame. He says the people brought the animals. Then he says they brought them for good reason to offer sacrifice to the Lord. So he takes his disobedience and he tries to put a positive spin on it and justify it, saying that the end justifies the means. It does not. But Samuel cuts to the very heart of the matter. He shows that King Saul preferred the favor of the people over obedience to the Lord's command. Because of his rebellion, the Lord rejected Saul as king and promised to give the kingdom to one better than him. A man, we will come to see, a man after the Lord's own heart. So we stand on the precipice of this great tragedy in Israel's monarchy. The first king has strayed from the path of righteousness, disobeyed God, feared the people, and he's been rejected by God and will soon be replaced by another. So if we consider then the relationship between Samuel, the prophet, and Israel's kingmaker, and King Saul, it would not be presumptuous to say that the relationship is strained. <laughs> this was not always the case. I mean, Samuel was the man who anointed Saul as king, and they had a very close relationship throughout those early years. But the relationship is strained. We see this little exchange towards the end of chapter 15 where, where Saul he actually tries to block Samuel's exit. Samuel pronounces the judgment of the Lord upon King Saul, and as he tries to, to leave the room or the tent, wherever they might be, Saul reaches out and actually grabs a hold of Samuel's garment, and he tears it. And then Samuel then uses this to issue this sort of prophetic oracle yet again against Saul as an illustration of his disobedience and judgment. And then Samuel finishes the job that Saul himself failed to do. He finishes the job. He takes the sword, and he... He hacks Agag to pieces himself, and then he parts his ways with the cursed king. They part ways. The scriptures tell us that after a period of mourning over Saul's rebellion, Samuel is very deeply grieved, that Samuel receives a new set of instructions from the Lord. And that's where our text this morning picks up in 1 Samuel 16. We'll start right at the beginning, verse 1. And as we read, I want you to pay particular attention to the exchange between the Lord and his prophet. Pay particular attention to that exchange. This is the word of the Lord. 
Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? And he said, In peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. As you consider this text, what's particularly fascinating to me is that if you were to essentially blot out that entire exchange, that concern of Samuel's in the Lord's response, in terms of the broader narrative here, virtually nothing would be lost. Essentially what we would have is we would have Samuel would travel to Bethlehem. He would anoint a son of Jesse as the new king over Israel, a king after the Lord's own heart that would, Lord willing, restore the nation of Israel to covenant faithfulness, obedience. So why? Why does the author, whether Samuel or some, some, someone other, a chronicler, why does he take the pains to include this dialogue, this exchange between Samuel the prophet and the Lord? Why is it here? Now, I think on one level we can observe that the Lord's instructions concerning the sacrifice show how he is at work in these circumstances to protect his choice of king from the intentions of evil men. But on another level, I think it also shows us how Israel's leading prophet and kingmaker is solely dependent on the Lord to accomplish his mission. Samuel receives his instructions, but note, he sees a very serious obstacle in the path to fulfilling those instructions and executing the instructions the Lord has given him. And that obstacle is this. A visit to Bethlehem is sure to raise suspicion. The suspicions of King Saul. If the purpose of his journey becomes known, Samuel was thoroughly convinced at this point that Saul would hunt him down, kill him, and thereby scuttle the entire mission. The charge that the Lord had given him to anoint the next king. So if Saul was prepared to kill Samuel, the man of God who had made him king, then I'm almost certain Saul was ready to kill anyone else caught up in this treasonous plot. From a human standpoint, this entire enterprise of anointing a new king is in serious jeopardy. Not only the life of Samuel is at stake, 
but the sons of Jesse, if, if, if they caught wind that the sons of Jesse were the target of this mission and that one of them was to be anointed king, certainly their lives are in jeopardy. But even the town of Bethlehem, how will Saul react when he knows that the elders of the city allow the prophet in with this mission at heart? There's an obstacle in the path to obedience. The text doesn't tell us specifically why a trip to Bethlehem would send up red flags with King Saul. It, it doesn't make that explicit. Uh, but it, in all likelihood, was because this wasn't Samuel's normal prophetic circuit. That is, Samuel's house was in Ramah, and it seems that in Ramah, that he probably had a circuit of prophetic ministry that he interacted with in and around his hometown. So for whatever reason, in this particular period of Samuel's ministry, for him to make a trip from his hometown of Ramah to Bethlehem would have raised serious flags. It wasn't normal. There would have been questions. So how does Samuel respond? He has a dilemma, a problem on the path to obedience. Notice what Samuel does. He takes stock of the situation, and then what? He carries that concern, that very weighty concern, to his Lord. He carries it to the Lord, and he says, how can I go? When Saul hears it, he will kill me. Mm-hmm. Notice the Lord's gracious response. He responds by giving the prophet a pretext for his visit. It's a pretext that would, in fact, conceal the primary purpose of the journey from the eyes of evil men, King Saul and his cohorts. But note very carefully here that the Lord does not tell the prophet to lie. He gives him a valid reason to go. He tells him to take a heifer and to make a sacrifice. The pretext dispels the suspicion that would have surrounded such a journey from Rana to Bethlehem and creates a very natural context for the feast and the natural interactions that would have happened with Jesse and his sons. It eliminates the suspicion and preserves the mission. The text doesn't tell us why the elders of Bethlehem were so concerned by Samuel's arrival. Um, I think there might be a couple options here. It's possible that the approach of a prophet of the Lord with a heifer in tow suggested something nefarious was afoot. And uh, I actually get that from the law of Moses. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 21, Moses outlines a rather elaborate ritual that's involved that involves the elders of a city whenever there is an unsolved murder nearby. That is, when a body is found in a field and they cannot solve the case and determine who is at fault, who the guilty party is, there is this elaborate ritual that Moses outlines in Deuteronomy 21 whereby uh, the atonement can be made for the bloodshed that has taken place. And essentially what it involves, that it involves the, the, the priests and the elders of the various cities in the surrounding area would actually go out and they would measure 
how you, they have the crime scene in the, in the body of the deceased has been located, and they would measure out to try to find out which city was closest to that crime scene. And once they had established which city was closest, what followed then was a ritual that would actually culminate, a centerpiece of that ritual, the culmination of which was the breaking of the neck of a heifer and the pledge from the elders of the city that they were guiltless of this man's blood. And so if you can imagine kind of in your mind's eye that Samuel, the great prophet of Israel, is coming down and approaching the town and maybe the elders of the city are, are lounging in the city gates and they see him coming and maybe Samuel, more than likely, had attendants in tow, but there's a heifer with him. And so then maybe they're thinking, whoa, what, what happened? Was someone killed and we didn't hear about it? This isn't good. So they don't know what's happening. So that could be why they are afraid and concerned about Samuel's visit. But I think the other possible reason, and probably more likely reason, is that the elders knew of the tensions between the prophet and the, and the king. And they were deeply concerned that violence and bloodshed would break out in their streets. And rightly so. Rightly so. I mean, if King Saul was ready and prepared to kill Samuel, and Samuel apparently was convinced he was, then anyone else in his path would have been nothing. So the elders of the city are concerned that violence is going to break out in the streets. They don't know why Samuel's here. They know this isn't the normal place for Samuel to be. Samuel, why, why are you here? We know what's going on between you and Saul. Let us know. But in either case, Samuel puts the concerns of the elders to rest by announcing he has come in peace. He has come in peace to sacrifice to the Lord. The Lord's solution to Samuel's dilemma preserves not only the life of the prophet, but the town and the sons of Jesse and the coming king after the Lord's own heart. So this is, I think, the guiding principle that should inform our prayer life. And it's simply this. When we are faced with obstacles on the path to obedience, we must, we must turn to our Lord in sincere heartfelt and specific prayer. We must turn that concern over to him. Now, I said at the beginning, prayer as a word does not service in this text. We have an exchange between the Lord and his prophet. We do not know how that exchange transpired. It was it through a series of dreams, was it a vision, was it an audible voice? We don't know. And in it to a degree it's not really relevant. The point is the disposition of the prophet's heart. There was an obstacle in the path, a problem in the pathway of obedience, and he takes that concern to the Lord. He is wholly dependent on him. Lord, I don't know what the solution is, but if I go, you know this is a suicide mission. Help me. Help me. Specific prayer for specific concerns demonstrates our total dependence on the Lord. And it ultimately gives him the glory that he alone is due. We must, we must turn our problems into prayers. Years ago, I worked for a helicopter company as a mechanic, a technician. I was a very young technician at the time. I had come straight out of tech school. I'd been a recent graduate 
recently passed my FA exams. I was the new kid on the block. I was, I was the green guy. And I came into this particular shop environment in which there were many, many seasoned techs. In fact, some of them were on their way toward retirement. And so I had been hired to train up to replace some of them. Now, although I enjoyed the work, that shop environment was anything but godly. It was, quite frankly, the kind of place where every imaginable kind of obscene and lewd talk just flowed freely in conversation between those technicians. Now, some of you who who have worked in blue collar might relate a bit to what I'm talking about, but it was just like every other sentence, okay? Uh, It was a language, right? Uh, In one of the more, could I say, perverted men in that shop was an older gentleman, a technician, by the name of Robert, Robert Parcell. Robert had been with that company for 38 years. He'd been there a long time, and he was rough. He was a rough character and something of a legend within that company. Just to kind of illustrate how rough this guy was, Every summer, Robert would take a road trip from just south of Portland, Oregon, to Minnesota on his Harley-Davidson motorcycle, shirtless. The whole way shirtless in the hot sun, this guy would ride his Harley from Oregon to Minnesota every single year. This guy was a tough character, and he was one of the most perverted men in the shop. He was the kind of guy who would tell off just about anybody. It didn't matter if it was a tech under him. It didn't matter if it was his boss. He would tell him off. So needless to say, I was pretty intimidated by this guy, right? So I'm the new kid. I'm the young green technician. And here's this guy, probably the most senior guy in the shop at the time, on the brink of retirement. And he's this rough, abrasive character, perverted man, But you know what? The Lord began tugging at my heart and showing me that this man wasn't someone to avoid, but in fact was someone to pity, tremendously pity, because he was hopelessly lost in his sin. And I would like to say that I then followed the Spirit's leading and witnessed to the man and shared the gospel to him, but I didn't. I didn't. I pushed away that tug, that impulse, the Spirit's work in my heart. I didn't want to get in this man's crosshairs, and I certainly didn't want to have what I was sure would be a controversial conversation about the gospel in the workplace. In my mind, I rationalized my fears and told myself, Robert is the kind of guy who's going to be a mocker. If I try to share the gospel with him, it's going to burn every other bridge for every other technician on this shop floor. He is going to mock incessantly. He is not worth it. He's going to be a mocker, and he's going to hurt whatever opportunities I have with anybody else. Sharing my faith with him couldn't possibly be a part of God's plan for me. Mm -hmm. Or so I thought. So I rationalized. Mm -hmm. So I made excuses. But I was wrong. I was wrong because God's spirit kept tugging at my heart. And you know what? I finally arrived at a point where I said, God, I look, I don't know what you're doing here. But you clearly want me to speak to Robert. 
I don't know how, but you want me to do it. You know I have some very real concerns here that this man is going to mock your good news, the gospel of salvation. So how do I do it? Please make a way. That was the prayer of my heart. I didn't know how the Lord was going to work in that circumstance. I had no idea. Did I have cold feet still? Yeah, sure, I did. But I was compelled by the Spirit's work in my heart that I had to share God's salvation with that man. Around that time, Robert officially retired from the company. He would still circle around and drop by the shop every couple weeks, so I occasionally saw him. But no clear opportunity for that kind of conversation really seemed to present itself. And so I was in a quandary as to what to do. I continued to bring the matter to the Lord in prayer. Say, Lord, you keep deepening this desire, this oughtness in my heart that says you must share this gospel with Robert. How am I going to do it? A couple of months after his retirement, Robert had a stroke. I got word he was laid up in a nearby hospital, and Hannah and I were recently married, so I took Hannah with me, and we, uh, we went to visit Robert in that hospital. And when we walked, I didn't know much about his condition when we went to visit. I knew he had a pretty serious stroke, and he was laid up in intensive care, but I didn't know what the circumstances were. But I felt compelled that, hey, this is an opportunity that I need, to, I need to use. I need to go there and speak with this man. So I showed up at that hospital room, and I, frankly, I couldn't believe what I saw. Here was the man that I was sure would be the greatest mocker of the gospel. He was lying in a hospital bed, fully alert, fully conscious, but unable to say a single word. The stroke had left him paralyzed. His arms his legs, and his mouth. He's fully aware. He recognized me. He knew who I was. It was obvious from his face. But he could not say a single word. I sat down by his bedside. I pulled out my Bible, and I poured out my heart to that calloused man and pled with him to repent of his sin and turn to Christ. A couple months later, Robert was moved to a long-term care facility, and I was able to visit him one more time. After that, we, Hannah and I, were moving across the country, and uh, so that chapter in my life closed off. So a couple months later, I actually went and Googled his name to figure out what had happened to Robert. And just a few short months after I had left, he had passed away, actually from cancer, of all things. And you know what? To this day, I do not know whether Robert came to faith in those final months of his life. But I am convinced of one thing, one thing. That is, God answered my prayer. He shut the mouth of that man so that I could give him the whole gospel without interruption. God removed the obstacle that I had identified in my prayer. God had responded to my prayer, just like he did for Samuel. So for me, in that circumstance, God worked through Robert's paralysis. He silenced the mouth of a mocker to allow me to be able to speak the good news of salvation to him and call him to repentance and faith. 
In both cases, whether it was in my circumstance or in Samuel's circumstance, God was at work to answer prayer. For Samuel, God worked through the pretext of a sacrifice. For me and Robert, it was that stroke. In both cases, God restrained evil men and allowed his servants to carry out his work. Now, I do want to be careful here and not leave you with a sort of false impression. And so I need to think, I think I need to make a clarification and a qualification. That's simply this. Just because we take a problem to the Lord in prayer does not mean that the Lord will always answer by removing or restraining that problem. He might, or he might have a good and better plan in place of which we are not aware. He may answer by showing a better way, or he may simply affirm that his grace is sufficient and lead us to take whatever hit may come our way. In Acts 20, in in Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders, he tells them that his Jerusalem, his upcoming Jerusalem visit, will result in imprisonment and personal hardship. The Spirit has revealed this to him in advance. But what's interesting is it doesn't appear to be because of any lack of prayer on Paul's part about this matter, because we know from Romans 15 that Paul had asked the saints in advance to pray that he might be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. Paul was asking the saints to pray on his behalf that this obstacle could be avoided. He had a mission, but he knew there was an obstacle in the path. There were disobedient men in Judea. So in a sense, Paul was rescued. His life was spared for future ministry beyond Jerusalem. We know that from the rest of Acts. But it did not come apart from great personal hardship. Paul was arrested and imprisoned, and then what followed was a long journey to Rome. Don't let your obstacles become your excuse. Commit the matter to the Lord. Now, as we, that is Hannah and I, consider our future ministry prospects, and we are looking to take the gospel to a very restrictive place, we see many many obstacles ahead, problems that from a human standpoint seem in some ways insurmountable. Some of you brought those questions up this morning, and I don't have answers to all of those. Some of those challenges are ever-evolving visa restrictions, state surveillance, laws that directly limit worship and expression of our faith, Language, culture barriers, everything that would inhibit the communication of God's good news to the lost. These are just a few things that are in our path. But Samuel's dilemma, in many ways, I think, parallels our own. Samuel is faced with a hostile king, a hostile government that strongly resists the mission of God. And so do we. And we also have a need for a legitimate, legitimate pretext to be in this place. So we can look at these obstacles 
We could talk about closed countries, and we can let that become an excuse. But what we should do, and the prophet sets us a wonderful example in this respect, what we should do is we should commit to diligently bringing those problems to our Lord in prayer. Turn your problems into prayers. We need his wisdom. We need his strength. We need the help only he can supply. Now, I don't know what obstacles on the path of obedience you are facing right now. But I'd venture to say there are some for almost every person in this room. Can I plead with you? Don't be passive. Don't allow those obstacles to grow into excuses. But on the other side of the coin, don't assume that you can handle those obstacles in your own strength. Samuel was a powerful man. He was the leading prophet of Israel during this time, and he had appointed the very first king. But he didn't think he could handle this problem in his own strength. He turned to his Lord. May we all follow Samuel's example and turn our problems into prayers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who hears and answers our prayers. You don't always answer in the way we'd expect or the ways we might, in our complete, incomplete knowledge, might want. But you always answer in ways that are working out your good plans. Father, I pray that by your spirit you would help us be a people marked by the habit of diligent and specific prayer. A prayer life that identifies the problems in the path and pleads with you for a solution. Help us not to assume we can handle it in and of ourselves or use these problems as an excuse to back away from our obligation. Give us wisdom, Father, to go about your mission as faithful servants. Servants who are, in fact, shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. We ask all these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus. Amen.